Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Corticosteroids have been utilizing critical care for their anti-inflammatory and antifibrotic properties for decades. Both in sepsis and ARDS, debate over the role and efficacy of corticosteroids have lasted years. With the development of the COVID-19 pandemic, the potential role of corticosteroids once again became a topic of great interest and debate amongst intensivists. In today's episode of the podcast, we will take a deep dive into the topic of corticosteroids and COVID-19 ARDS. Our guest is Dr. Todd Rice. Dr. Rice is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University. He serves as the Director of the Medical ICU. As a physician scientist, he conducts clinical research in the ICU, specifically in patients with sepsis, ARDS, and acute respiratory failure. Dr. Rice's research has expanded in the last few years to using the ICU as a learning healthcare environment and conducting comparative effectiveness trials. In addition to having his own National Institute of Health NIH funding, Dr. Rife serves as the Vanderbilt PI for the Prevention and Early Treatment of Acute Lung Injury, the PEDAL Network. Dr. Rice recently co-authored an editorial published in JAMA entitled Corticosteroids and COVID-19 ARDS, Evidence and Hope During the Pandemic. It is a true honor to have him on the podcast. Todd, welcome to Critical Matters. Thanks, Sergio. I would like to start with a brief historical context on the steroids and critical care. I mean, both in ARDS and in sepsis, seems that we've been talking about them for decades now. I, I mean, I think I think it's been a little bit of a convoluted picture. Um, and, you know, they uh, decades ago were being used in these patients died, decrease the inflammatory cascade and try and, you know, over overcome the body's inflammation to whatever the the etiology was of the ARDS or in septic shock, you know, the infection. Uh, and I think largely, as people know, there were lots of mixed results from those uh, studies and um, a, a pretty convoluted picture that made it really hard to know what to do with um, steroids in patients that had either ARDS or septic shock. <clears throat> you know, then we uh, had had some reasonable randomized trials of high-dose steroids that didn't seem to show a benefit, some trials of late steroids in patients with ARDS where there may have been uh, even potential neuromuscular weakness as a harm. And I think that that for at least a significant proportion of the critical care world sort of turned uh, people off to steroids and said, well, maybe they don't work. They do have some side effects. Maybe we shouldn't be using them. But as many know, there's always been an interest, and and from a from a biological plausibility and a mechanistic standpoint, they've always seemed to make sense that uh, their their um, their um, anti-inflammatory and pretty non-descriptive anti-inflammatory, meaning they they broadly cover a lot of uh, um, inflammation and and mechanisms of inflammation, and so the um, the concept of this is an inflammatory condition and it seems like the body's inflammation is what's doing a lot of the damage in this situation, both in ARDS and septic shock, it seemed like biologically it would make sense that if we could turn that inflammation off or depress that information, inflammation, the patient should do better. So there's always been this, this interest in them because biologically they make a lot of sense. Uh, and then, as you know, in the last three or four years, there have been a number of studies that have been very provocative in saying, maybe with the right approach and the right dose of steroids, maybe there is some benefit to them. Uh, and there's trials in septic shock, like approaches in adrenal, that say maybe they do get patients off of pressors faster and get off people off the ventilator faster, and maybe. I don't think it's definitive in, in septic shock, but maybe they even have a mortality benefit. And then in ARDS, uh, DEX-ARDS came out uh, a few months ago and had a positive signal for mortality. There are many people, me included, that think that that signal is, is so big that it's probably not really that big of a, a mortality signal, but have to admit that 
that there's a mortality signal and that maybe in patients with ARDS, dexamethasone may um, may improve mortality, may may improve outcomes. I think part of the hard part, at least with ARDS, is, is that it's a very heterogeneous, heterogeneous disease. And there's many, many, many different etiologies of it. And traditionally in the past, we've put all of those etiologies into the same bucket, called them ARDS. It's definitely a syndrome. It's a syndrome that can happen from many different diagnoses. And then we've tried to treat them all the same or try and study them all with the same potential intervention. And my suspicion is, is that that's what's contributed to the cloudiness and the muddling of this picture and made it harder for us to truly understand what the signal is of corticosteroids in patients with ARDS. It feels, Todd, that almost um, at the beginning of, of the year, like you said, DEX-ARDS came out, but I think it was totally over overrun by COVID and our focus on COVID, and we didn't really uh, discuss it as much in, in, many, in many circles. But the yeah. feeling at the time was almost they steroids make sense. They probably work. We just haven't been able to figure out which are the exact patients that would benefit, right? Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of it. I think, you know, the other thing that that trials like DEXA ARDS run up against is is that there's a there's some history with steroids. And so, you know, when a study like DEXA ARDS comes out and shows a uh, what I consider to be a really big treatment effect, people say, well, if it's really that big, we should have, even if we had heterogeneity in, in the population and issues with trial design in the past, we should have been able to see something. There should have been something there. And, and if there wasn't anything there, then I don't know that there's any chance that the effect could be that big. Uh, and I think there may be some truth to that. Uh, but I also think that that it's not, it doesn't allow us to just dismiss the effect entirely and say, well, it can't be true because we haven't seen it in the past. Um, and I think, you know, uh, DEX-ARDS is swimming upstream a little bit from the past history of steroids and ARDS and, you know, no uh, single study that showed a huge, huge effect. But um, I think that that's how progress is made and that's how we better understand uh, treatments and diseases and you know, as we're getting further and further into this and doing more and more steroids trials in ARDS, we're getting a better understanding. And DEX-ARDS is obviously the, the most recent part in non-COVID ARDS to, to give us information to kind of help clarify that better understanding. Before we started recording, we were just talking about the COVID pandemic. And one of the comments you made is that obviously as devastating as the pandemic has been for patients and as hard as it's been for healthcare providers, there's also always a several lining, and one of them was the amount of effort that scientists around the world have put around trying to find answers. And specifically, uh, we were just commenting on how much has been studied in steroids and, uh, and ARDS due to COVID-19. So why don't we jump into COVID-19, ARDS, and corticosteroids? And perhaps we could start, Todd, with a, a timeline that takes us back to February, March, when the initial recommendations from WHO and others were to not use corticosteroids in a widespread use, and just take us through what the thought process was at that point. Yeah, the the World Health Organization, the CDC, all had comments and recommendations not to use them, not to widespread use them for the treatment of COVID-19. Obviously, in those statements, they always say that if a patient has a has a condition that would otherwise be treated with corticosteroids, so they have an asthma exacerbation or they have, you know, a, um, a flare with lupus or another connective tissue disease that you would treat with steroids, uh, then you should use steroids, but not to use them specifically for the treatment of COVID-19. And, uh, you know, I'm not part of those organizations, so I, I can't necessarily tell you with confidence why they did that, but uh, I do know that the data for other viral illnesses, especially flu, MERS, and SARS, suggested that steroids increased viral replication and you know, made it so that the virus replicated more readily and for a longer period of time. And I think that kind of preliminary data, not necessarily clinical with clinical outcomes, but uh, preclinical in, in um, viral loads and viral replication, I think that data scared people about maybe steroids weren't going to be helpful because we've studied them in ARDS before and haven't found a huge signal, save DEXA ARDS, which was very recent. 
And there's a potential downside of if it makes the virus replicate, maybe it's going to make the disease even worse. And therefore, you know, no, no strong recommendation. In fact, the recommendation to avoid steroids uh, for the treatment of COVID-19 specifically from the World Health Organization and the, and the CDC. Uh, interestingly, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign actually had a weak recommendation. They said, we think you should use steroids in COVID-positive ARDS. And I think they were really kind of the ones that, that went out on that limb and said, you know, with the DEXA-ARDS data, we think that, that there may be a potential here for some benefit. And we, um, we you know, recommend that maybe, maybe you, should, you should use them in that situation. Um, and then uh, the IDSA, uh, was sort of the what I call the political uh, response, which is uh, use them in the context of clinical trials that, you know, the we need to study them, but we don't think they should be used in routine clinical practice at this point. And that's sort of, you know, the, the widespread recommendations and the, the diversity of recommendations across different groups. Uh, but I think you're right, in general, the, the most common recommendation was we don't recommend using these in patients that have uh, COVID-19 uh, for the treatment of COVID-19. And I think an important distinction uh, for intensivists is that in our world, obviously, a great number of patients that we're seeing in our ICUs with COVID, especially in places where they have a high incidence, are going to be patients with ARDS. But the hundreds of patients that we see in our ICUs with ARDS are just the tip of an iceberg of millions of patients with much milder COVID-19 symptoms. And that is probably also what people were alluding to in terms of making these recommendations. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So let's talk a little bit about the trials. I think that uh, there's a lot uh, that came out in the last uh, couple of months, which I think like we mentioned earlier is a silver lining and a great effort from the scientific community. But perhaps we could start with the early retrospective data out of China, and then uh, if you could share with us the idea of the WHO PROSPERO meta-analysis uh, in terms of how it was set up, and then we could probably go into the individual trials and put it all together later with the results of PROSPERO. Yeah, so the the early retrospective data were were uh, data that, you know, as, as the word says, were retrospective. They went back and looked at patients that got steroids and compared them to patients who didn't get steroids and saw, you know, hey, it looks like the patients that were getting steroids may have done better. Uh, everybody on this call probably, or everybody listening to this podcast probably understands that there are lots and lots of biases and confounders in retrospective data and ensuring that the population of patients that got steroids is the same as the population you're comparing it to that didn't get steroids is really, really, really difficult. And we do a lot of statistical things like um, like propensity score analyses or adjustments for baseline variables and, and a lot of those to try and make those two populations that we're comparing as similar as possible. But there's always unknown confounders and there's always issues with with things that aren't measured that you couldn't possibly have adjusted for, or you couldn't have even recognized that they were a, a potential confounder to even know to measure them to adjust for them. So there's always some issues with retrospective data, but retrospective data are sort of the first, the first body of evidence and kind of give us an idea of, well, maybe this is something we should look at further, and maybe this is something that we should, we should examine uh, in more detail in a perspective manner and maybe even in perspective randomized trials. The World Health Organization, you know, their job is to try and better the health of, of the, pop, the global population. And they, I think, recognized along with a number of others, but they recognized that uh, to get reliable and good information, we were likely going to have to combine efforts. And, you know, during this pandemic, uh, there's, there were, for a long time, there were lots and lots and lots of patients and places to study, but you got to get the trials up and running to do those studies if you're going to do perspective randomized trials. And there's always some uh, lead time in that and some actual 
effort and infrastructure and time that has to be built and put into it in order to get the trial up and running. And the patients with COVID aren't waiting. They're continuing to just come you know, into the institution. And so we heard pretty early on from colleagues in China that by the time they got their trials up and running and actually were starting to enroll, their cases were going away and they weren't completing their trials because they just didn't have enough patients anymore, which is a good thing from the from the uh, population standpoint of COVID, but a bad thing because you need to have patients in order to run trials to get an answer as to treatments. And I think that signal coming from China and Italy and some of the early places really made it apparent that the best way we're going to get rigorous answers is to try and combine efforts. And that sounds like a no-duh, of course. I mean, that, that's how else would you do this? It sounds like the most obvious thing probably that'll be said in this podcast. But uh, getting people to pull that off is hard. And getting people to networks, uh, trialists, researchers, to share their data, especially to share their data before they're already published, takes a lot of trust and takes a huge effort. Uh, because, you know, we in the research world are always scared that we're going to get scooped on something or somebody's going to put our data out there before we publish it and then it'll make it non-publishable and we won't ever be able to publish it under our name. And so there was a lot of uh, trust in the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization made a lot of, a lot of promises and, and commitments to these networks to be uh, very confidential with the data and to safeguard the data in a way that wouldn't uh, inhibit or, or um, hurt potential future publication of individual trials and even uh, worked with JAMA in making that so that they were all published together and so that that you know there wasn't any scooping and there wasn't any any pre-publication release of the data so that that it would it would hinder the the chance to publish it so the concept of combining these trials I mean we've been doing meta-analyses et cetera forever Right? The concept is not new. The idea that we had to do this in order to get enough data to answer the question was readily apparent and, and apparent to a lot of people, but the machinery and the making it happen is where the World Health Organization really, really, really excelled and did a phenomenal job of getting large networks that were doing these trials to come together and say, yes, we will share our data with you so that we can have you know, the most rigorous answer that we possibly can from all of the data that are potentially available to answer this question. And I think that also quite unique was a, not, not for the first time, but not very common, the idea of doing this as the perspective meta-analysis, right? So getting everybody together on board from the get-go and moving forward, considering that time was a premium with the pandemic going on. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Not, not, that wasn't totally novel. It had been done a few times in the past, but it certainly was um, was in the early stages of things that have done been done, and it increases the rigorousness of the meta-analysis because you know prospectively that you're getting these data. You can collect the data in a way that makes them a little bit more easily comparable and makes the analysis a little bit easier to uh, to understand and to do. So. Perhaps we could start with uh, going through some of these trials in a brief, just a description. I think that we'll put links to the to the to the trials for people to read in detail. And I think that ultimately it's the sum of this data and the 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 meta analysis that maybe guides us and gives us the final recommendations. But it's it's almost I, I think chronologically the first one that we heard about and that really caused the most impact was recovery. Could you just tell us a little bit about recovery, please? Yeah, recovery was an open label randomized trial done in the UK. The UK really uh, got all of their kind of hospitals, their public hospitals together and said, we're going to do research on COVID. We're going to do it uh, in a manner that even if you're not doing, not a hospital that's used to doing a ton of research, you're going to be able to do it. And we're going to, we're going to do it in, in mass force. And in fact, I think during that time, one sixth of the patients that were in the hospital with COVID were enrolled in a trial, in a trial of some sort uh, through, through the recovery is kind of the name of the platform. So there's recovery steroids, there's recovery plasma, there's recovery hydroxychloroquine uh, and, you know, recovery steroids enrolled uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of patients uh, in the range of 6,000 patients. 
um, it was open label, so patients and clinicians knew if they were randomized to steroids or if they were randomized to just standard of care. There was no placebo, it was just standard of care. And there are some issues with open label trials and there's some biases that can be introduced with open label trials, but it's also the, the probably the quickest way to get a trial up and running and uh, the way they did it in recovery, uh, which was similar in remap cap, you'll hear about that also, uh, allowed it to be done as just part of routine care. And there didn't have to be a lot of special uh, research specific interventions or people or or blood draws and labs, et cetera, et cetera. You could just do it as sort of part of your routine care. It works really, really, really well for uh, medications and therapies that are already approved and already in practice and that you know don't need a ton of safety studying and don't need a ton of, of regulatory um, monitoring to be done. And that obviously corticosteroids fit that perfectly. So, and then people I think know that the results showed, you know, they were they were released first in a press release, which was very interesting for those of us on the front lines to say, what do you do with a press release? You know, it's one thing we were start just starting to get used to what to do with preprints and understand sort of how we how we deal with those. And then recovery was released in a press release. There was a little bit of data in it, but not really the data that lets you analyze the trial results and understand them in a in a in depth at all in the press release. So it was released in a press release and the data showed, and I think people uh, recognize this, that there was about a 30% uh, reduction in the hospital mortality for patients in the ICU, or I'm sorry, patients on mechanical ventilation, and about a 20% reduction in mortality for patients that were on oxygen, but not uh, mechanically ventilated. You know, it's just a huge effect, a huge, huge, huge effect. Uh, and I think maybe importantly also, there was seemed to be no effect in patients that were not on oxygen when they were started on their steroids. Uh, and so those were kind of the results that we had. Big, big, big trial, an effect that was really quite large uh, and potentially differential effect, depending on how sick the patient was. And this changed the whole uh, landscape and also had a big impact on the trials that uh, you wrote the editorial on that we'll discuss uh, next. Could you just tell what the impact of this was on the trials and why ultimately the uh, meta-analysis probably uh, proved to be super valuable in this case? Yeah, I, I think the 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 good and the bad of this is, is that the good part of this was is that there's a trial, it was done, it was big, it had an effect and they were putting results out there. The bad side of this is, is that it made it really hard for other trials studying steroids to know what should we do with this. Is it ethical? Is it um, okay to continue to enroll patients into a steroid trial where there's a placebo arm and patients aren't getting steroids? Are these data, these recovery data good enough that, that everybody should just be getting steroids, that we should stop our trial? Is there this term equipoise? Do clinicians still have enough doubt on whether steroids work or not, that they would even be willing to put their patients in these trials? Or do patients have enough doubt as to whether or not these work or not, that they would be willing to say, yes, I'm willing to participate in a trial instead of just saying, I think it works, just give me the steroids. Uh, those are tough, having gone through those a couple of times, those are tough decisions to make in a, in a trial when new information comes out that makes it so that you need to consider changing your trial. And in this place, in this situation, not just changing your trial, but pretty much stopping your trial. And so every single one of them, I think independently, looked at the recovery results and said, they're good enough results that we probably can't continue. We can't uh, continue to give people a placebo or a non-steroid arm uh, in order to study this further. And so they ended up stopping their trials uh, when the recovery results were, were released. Todd, could we just recap the uh, uh three trials that ultimately were published together and uh, are published alongside the meta-analysis that did include data from recovery as well. But I think it's it's valuable for, for our audiences to know what these are. And you mentioned re remap cap, and we can talk about that first. Yeah, remap, remap cap is similar to recovery. It's an open label trial, uh, platform trial. So there are multiple actual interventions that you could get randomized to in remap cap, depending on which domain you've into. So the remap cap steroids, corticosteroids, which is what was published in JAMA, uh, randomized patients to either steroids or a standard of care in an open label of fashion, again, without a blinded placebo uh, to try and determine the effect. It was kind of in the US, kind of in the UK, 
kind of in Australia. So it's it's a multinational in Europe also. It's a multinational trial uh, led by um, Derek Angus in Pittsburgh. And uh, it was it, it's kind of interesting to note that it was not a platform that was designed for COVID. It's actually an ongoing platform to study community-acquired pneumonia and treatments in community-acquired pneumonia. And then they essentially added a COVID domain when COVID was here. And so they sort of used already already um, up, already existing infrastructure in order to do this. And REMAP-CAP uses a Bayesian approach, so it's a little harder to understand because it's not a traditional frequentist statistical approach. And the Bayesian approach just says sort of, it doesn't give you a p-value, instead it gives you an output that says, what's the probability that one arm is better than the other? And if we continue to go, what do we think the chance that that one arm will be shown to be better than the other arm uh, will be. And if you read the article, you can see that's how the outputs are from REMAP-CAP. There's a 90% chance posterior probability that steroids are better in patients uh, that were randomized in, into, there's three arms in REMAP-CAP. There was a 90% chance they're better if they were randomized into the steroid arm. There's about an 82% chance that they were better if they were randomized into the the um, what's called shock dependent or steroid shock dependent arm. And in the steroid arm, the first arm with the 90%, they gave patients steroids. Uh, they gave, um, I'm gonna forget actually uh, what the actual steroid was. Sergio, you remember what the steroid was? So they they gave all run together for me. Hydro hydrocortisone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They and Cape COVID gave hydrocortisone. Codex yeah. gave the dexamethasone, yeah. So REMAP-CAP gave hydrocortisone. Um, and they gave a fixed dose to patients in the steroid arm. They gave a fixed dose to patients in the steroid shock arm, but only when those patients were in shock. So patients that were in shock at the beginning would got randomized to steroids, would get steroids, but patients who were not in shock, who got randomized in that arm, would only get steroids if they developed shock. So a little less than half of the patients in that arm actually got steroids. So it's a really complicated arm to understand. But even with that, it looked like steroids had a pretty high probability, a really high probability actually, of being better than the standard of care group. And this study, as, as the other ones, uh, showed this probability based on the Bayesian approach, like you explained, of 90% in the patients who got the steroids um, regardless, and 83% yeah. of being better in those who got it in the shock um, mode, uh, but did not reach its primary um, threshold to call it a positive correct. trial, correct? Correct. Yeah, correct. Um, a, a big part of that, you'll hear that in all three of these trials, a big part of that is, is that uh, they were all stopped early. They were stopped when the recovery results came out. So they have fewer patients enrolled in them than they had hoped they were going to have or that they were planning to try and enroll. And because of that, they don't have quite the confidence in their answers that they were hoping to have gotten had they been uh, completed with enrollment to the planned numbers. The second trial is the CODEX trial, which is the one that gave dexamethasone, and I think it was conducted in, principally in, in Brazil. Could you give us a yeah. synopsis of that trial, Todd? Yeah, so the CODEX trial um, was in Brazil, uh, another uh, open-label trial, and used dexamethasone, so very similar to recovery, actually used uh, a little bit of higher dose, 20 milligrams instead of 10, instead of six milligrams for the first, uh, I think, five days, and then 10 milligrams for the second five days, if I remember correctly. Um, so a little bit of a higher dose of dexamethasone uh, in Brazil, um, and again, didn't meet statistical significance for its outcome, but uh, showed in general benefit to, I think their primary endpoint was ventilator-free days, which is days alive and off of the ventilator, uh, and showed improvement in those that did not reach statistical significance. Also looked at mortality and showed a mortality signal that was, again, not statistically significant, but very, very, very consistent with what the recovery uh, results showed. Uh, and so uh, both, re I mean, all three of these trials, REMAP-CAP, CODEX, and, and the next one we'll talk about, Cape COVID, have signals that are remarkably similar to the recovery signal, so, you know, and that's I think where where the value in the meta-analysis comes into is is that that it shows you how consistent the signal seems to be across all these trials, even if some of them, REMAP-CAP codex, for example, don't have enough power to reach statistical significance because they were stopped early. And the last one you mentioned is Cape COVID, which I think had the particular uh, aspect that was the only one with that utilized placebo. 
Yeah. Yeah, Cape COVID was a French trial. Uh, it uses hydrocortisone, just like Remap-Cap did, uh, but it's the only one of the group, even including recovery, that's blinded and used an actual placebo-controlled um, uh, arm. So uh, its endpoint was uh, this funny endpoint of death or a respiratory failure, persistent respiratory failure at 21 days, or the opposite of that, which is uh, um, getting over survival and getting over respiratory failure at 21 days. And essentially that is, it's a little bit complicated, but essentially that is coming off of the ventilator uh, at, at 21 days and being alive. So it's a little bit akin to ventilator free days. And, you know, it, it again got stopped early, but it actually had a signal in some of its outputs uh, that was statistically significant and showed benefit of, of hydrocortisone in patients that had COVID and severe respiratory failure. And it's very interesting that these trials, if were to be published independently or different time spans, would all probably still add to the confusion because we would say that they technically show a signal, but they're not positive uh, yeah. per se. And I think that that's where probably the value of this perspective uh, meta-analysis by the WHO comes into play and in giving us a little bit more confidence of what to do with these patients. So could you tell us what ultimately the Prospero meta-analysis showed and who did it include? Yeah, so the Prospero, I think, uh, included the four trials we talked about, recovery, remap-cap, codex, and Cape COVID. It also included three other trials uh, that I don't think are published yet, um, when, but are smaller and were also stopped because of recovery uh, of steroids. Uh, one of those trials actually looked at methylprednisolone. So there's a couple nice things about Prospero. One is, is that it allows us to sort of look at the effect of different steroids, both hydrocortisone and dexamethasone, which are used in multiple trials, and then even one trial with methylprednisolone, uh, and look at those steroids and kind of see, is the effect consistent? Are we seeing anything that's different among the, the different steroid uh, specific steroids. The other thing I think that it that it kind of did was it just gave the full picture. Uh, what is the real consistency among these trials? And if we put them all together and get huge, huge, huge numbers, what does the effect size look like? And so in Prospero, they found that mortality went from 40%, and, and this is in uh, mechanically ventilated patients, so the patients with severe COVID-19. Mortality went from 40% to 32% compared to from the standard of care arm to the steroid arm. So an 8% reduction, absolute reduction in mortality, which is a 20% relative reduction for the 40% uh, in the standard of care arm. 8% is a pretty big reduction. That means that if you treat 12 and a half, so call it 13 patients with steroids, you'll save one life. One, one, one uh, patient will uh, survive that would have otherwise died if you treat 13 patients. Uh, with steroids. So that's a that's a pretty good effect. We don't see that effect very, very much in critical care medicine. And, you know, it's an effect size that that is tangible and palpable uh, and, you know, not such that you have to treat 100 patients in order to see one positive outcome. And considering the numbers that we're seeing, I think that we can all make do the math really quickly and it does add up to a lot of saved lives in this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another aspect of Prospero that you mentioned that I think is uh, worth re-emphasizing is that because it included uh, all these studies with different steroids, that effect that you're quoting is on the use of steroids and includes dexamethasone, methylprednisolone, there's only one study, and hydrocortisone, correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah, I think it's, it suggests pretty strongly that it's a class effect that this is, a, this is a steroid class effect and that there's nothing specific about dexamethasone from the recovery trial, that, that it's the only one that will benefit people and that it's corticosteroids in general. And I think that also helps us with the mechanism that suggests that all of these are, are similar in that they're anti-inflammatory and it's decreasing the inflammatory response from the body and the damage that's done from that inflammatory response that's, that's providing the benefit to these patients. The one other thing that Prospero looked at, sorry, Sergio, the other thing no. that Prospero looked at is, is dose and couldn't actually see a difference in dose either. Uh, high dose like was done in Codex versus uh, a lower dose that was recovery and, and um, the other trials. So, uh, you know, the, the, the hypothesis at least 
uh, maybe strong hypothesis from that is is that that you don't need a high dose and that low dose may actually be as beneficial as a high dose. I think there may still be a little bit of a lingering in that question, but but at least for now, I think the data suggests that low dose is as good as high dose and you don't have to use high doses in these patients. Which I think is important in terms of side effects, which was going to be my next question. One of the aspects that perhaps we didn't get as much information as we would want because of the, the, the design of recovery and some of the other trials was what, what's the impact on side effects or potential complications from steroids? Yeah, I completely agree. I, you know, some of that you can read out of the editorial that the way these trials were done in an open label and in the middle of a pandemic, uh, collection of side effects in a rigorous way is just was just not a high priority. And uh, we still have a little bit of a void on truly understanding what might be the side effects in these patients. Many of you listening to this podcast probably are using steroids in your patients, so you'll you'll relate a little bit to when I've used them, I've found that there's obvious hyperglycemia. It's not a huge side effect because we usually can treat it with some insulin and, and treat it pretty well. But the bigger side effect that we've seen that we've really struggled with is this delirium uh, and almost like a psychosis. It appears, at least to me, anecdotally, it appears to be worse in elderly patients. And unfortunately, the elderly patients appear to be more affected by COVID and tend to get more severe disease. So we're seeing those in our ICUs and in our hospitals more. And the delirium is, is at times treatment limiting. And what I mean by that is, is that it's so bad that, you know, you, you struggle to keep the patient safe because they really are so confused and they're all over and they're trying to climb out of bed and they're pulling at things. And those I think are hard because we have in-depth discussions at the patient's bedside on rounds about, you know, do we need to stop the steroids? Do we need to, is this side effect so bad that we can't continue this treatment, which we now have data suggests is, is really beneficial for the patients. Um, because we're hurting them with the steroids. And I think those are the hard things to understand and the hard, the, the data that we need, the, the question that we need more data on to truly kind of understand, uh, you know, what to do in that situation. As the pandemic evolved, there was a big debate amongst people who were recommending all sorts of therapies with the argument that uh, better to do something than nothing. And with the argument that if we wait for the trials, we're never going to get the answer and people are going to die. I think that the steroid story is a great story to illustrate that when people get together and we have the numbers, that is the right time to do these trials so that we can get some answers. And I think that's a story that is worth also a, a underlying because it's been a constant, I think, discussion amongst clinicians lately. In order to bring things together, Todd, based on all that we discussed, where do you think today uh, the use of corticosteroids stands for COVID-19 ARDS? And what do you think it, what's the impact of these studies in COVID on other patients with ARDS? Yeah, I think in non-COVID ARDS, there are still some questions about what is the effect of steroids. DEXA-ARDS gives us some some data, but you know, it's not like we have in COVID where we have thousands and thousands of patients in multiple trials that we've put together and have a similar signal. So I think there may still be some randomized trials in patients with non-COVID ARDS uh, to better understand the effect of steroids in that group. But I think it's becoming harder and harder because I think as the data are starting to, to come together and come out and we're gathering more and more of it, more and more of the data, I think the tide is kind of swinging to steroids may truly be the, a treatment of choice in patients with non-COVID ARDS. It, in, it's an easier question for me in patients with COVID ARDS. And, you know, you could tell from the editorial that Holly Prescott and I wrote that both of us feel pretty strongly that steroids should be the standard of care for patients with with severe COVID-19, patients in the ICU with respiratory failure from COVID uh, should get steroids unless there's just a huge, big contraindication and a reason they can't get it. I think the data are pretty convincing that they improve outcomes and you can pick some outcomes, come off the ventilator, keeping you off the ventilator, saving your life, getting you out of the hospital. I think it, it has a positive effect on all of those. And so I think, you know, steroids are the, uh, I agree with the World Health Organization. I think they're the, the kind of new standard of care for critically ill patients with, with COVID. Um, 
I, I do think that there are still a lot of unanswered questions. You know, the the question of that we talked I talked about earlier. What do you do when you start a patient on steroids and then they have such bad delirium that you have a hard time keeping them safe from themselves? Uh, I think that's one question. I think dose is a little bit of a question. Maybe that uh, we our preliminary data suggests dose doesn't matter, but I think we need more better data in that realm. And I think the population for steroids is another big question. It's pretty easy. We're in a good spot for the intensivists because I think it's pretty easy that the patient that's sick with respiratory failure from COVID, that population I think is pretty clearly defined that we should probably give steroids to. But we're starting to see articles that there's different phenotypes of those patients. And maybe steroids work for a predominant phenotype, but not for a less predominant phenotype, a phenotype that maybe is more, more vascular coagulopathy type than a inflammatory phenotype, for example. And it's never, a bunch of us have talked about this, it's never really made sense to me that the marker of will steroids work or not is whether or not somebody puts you on oxygen. Uh, that just doesn't seem to make a ton of sense to me. And I think work needs to be done to figure out better markers and better indicators of which patients truly benefit from, which patients with COVID truly benefit from corticosteroids and which patients with COVID either don't benefit or maybe even potentially get harmed by uh, corticosteroids. Those biomarkers may be inflammatory biomarkers. They may be something we've never actually studied before, but, uh, but I think there needs to be work in that area. And then the last kind of question to me, people have asked me, well, can you use it with remdesivir? Can you use it with antivirals? And that to me isn't even a question. I think it's pretty clear that uh, the, they work in different manners. The mechanisms of action is entirely different between remdesivir, which is an antiviral, and steroids, which is an anti-inflammatory. And I think you both can use them together and maybe are helped by using them together. Maybe that's even better to use them together. So I think using them together is, is the right approach. The, the real unanswered question to me is duration of therapy. And some of this will resonate with, I think on the podcast, we have a number of patients that we see that after 10 days of steroids that we've been using from the recovery trial, uh, day 11 and day 12, the patient seems to be doing worse. Their inflammatory markers like their CRP or their ferritin or their LDH or uh, AST or pick an inflammatory marker are increasing. And they almost look like they got rebound inflammation from us stopping their steroids. In that population, should we give them their steroids back? Should we restart it? Did we just go too short? Do they need a longer course? Should we taper it? I think those are all questions that need to be answered. And I think they're questions that could have significant uh, contribution to improving the care of these patients and improving the outcomes of patients that we're treating already with steroids because we know that's the right thing to do, but we don't really know how to implement that in practice and, and get out of treating them with steroids. The patient who you treat with steroids, who got better, who um, um, uh, is already out of the ICU and on their way home, that patient stopping the steroids, I think seems to be a reasonable thing to do, but that patient who's still critically ill and or getting worse, I think we still have that question to answer. And I think that, like you mentioned, these are very important questions that hopefully we will be able to continue to study and understand. But I think it's uh, worth uh, emphasizing once again, the success story of really uh, getting data in the midst of a pandemic and finding a therapy that seems to have an impact on important patient outcomes, such as mortality and getting off a ventilator as a big win. And I think a lesson for future pandemics, if they were to come, that the sooner we start organizing in terms of uh, collaborating scientifically, the more likely we are to find answers that ultimately will help our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I would take it even a step further, Sergio. I would say, and, and we say this, I think, in the editorial, that <clears throat> this may set the stage and the standard for collaboration even outside of pandemics. You know, there are multiple groups that have questions about the same things in critical care. You, you know, there's some some big high level topics that we'd like answers on that have multiple large networks doing studies on them. And although there have been preliminary talks between some of those networks that I know about, for example, in general, those networks work in an isolated fashion to try and answer that question. And I think, you know, the World Health Organization has shown us a path forward of a way of being more efficient and answering these questions in a, in a faster manner and a more efficient manner for the benefit of our patients, honestly. 
and hopefully that'll carry over even that'll be one of those silver linings as you said from the pandemic that will carry over even into non-pandemic research that we can be collaborative in that way absolutely todd i really appreciate um, your expertise on this topic uh, we customary will end the podcast with a couple of questions that are outside of the context of the clinical topic and if that would be okay i would like to go that direction yeah that'd be great so the first question todd relates to books are there any book or books that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted more more often to others? Yeah, you know, I'm not a huge book reader, so this is a little bit of a hard question for me. Um, I read a lot of medical literature and, and not as much book reading, but but one book that sort of uh, has meant a lot to me and, and has sort of stood out to me is uh, a book called When Breath Becomes Air that many of you I'm sure have have potentially read uh, by Paul Kalanithi. Um, and uh, Paul was actually a neurosurgeon who during residency developed um, EGFR positive lung cancer and ultimately uh, passed away from his lung cancer, but writes this autobiography. And, and there are a number of sort of stories in the autobiography that hit home with me. Uh, one is, is that, you know, we're, we're on one side of this patient doctor relationship but we are not immune from becoming the other side where we're the patient. And it only takes a few times of becoming the patient to re-examine and look at that relationship differently when you're on the doctor side. And I think many of us have experienced that and, and sort of can relate to that. Uh, the other thing that, that this book sort of um, sits with me well is, is that uh, the, the probably the, the biggest achievement sounds kind of funny maybe it's not the right way to say it the highlight of my medical career so far is is that uh, my mentor uh, came down with pancreatic cancer and asked me to take care of him and provide care at the end of his life and um, although that was hard to do uh, it um, it resonates with me that it was a very 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 special thing and it uh, opened up so many additional thoughts about medicine and that it isn't just about care that's provided it's about compassion and it's about empathy and you know paul says a lot in his book it's about morals uh, and doing the right things and i and i think that that resonates a lot the book came out shortly after i was i had cared for my mentor and so i think you know it was sort of a uh, an open nerve that it kind of touched and and really kind of um rested and sat well there so i think that's probably probably the big book that that I like to talk about. It's an excellent read and we'll definitely link it in the show notes. Uh, the second question relates to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most people don't believe or act as they don't believe. Yeah, this one's uh, as a little uh, nihilistic maybe. Um, you know, I think we in medicine uh, want to do stuff and we we like doing stuff. Um, and sometimes doing things is not necessarily the right thing. So uh, that's part of it. The other part of it is, is that in, in critical care, um, and, and this is specifically um, true for critical care, unfortunately, we've, we've learned a ton of physiology. And then when we've taken that physiology and tried to apply it to the bedside, we've often been wrong in what we've been doing. Uh, and when we study things like higher tidal volumes, which improve oxygenation, but then when we studied it showed that it actually reduced mortality uh, or, um, you know, uh, uh, DVT, not DVT, sorry, um, GI prophylaxis. Uh, this seems to make sense, but when we study it, it says, well, it may not be saving lives and it could be harmful to people. Um, and so in the ICU specifically, uh, sometimes doing stuff, even doing stuff that physiologically is sound uh, may not be beneficial for our patients. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm very much an evidence-based guy and uh, I think you, you gotta have the evidence because um, the physiology all makes sense. And then when we apply it, it often doesn't, doesn't happen in vivo like we think it's supposed to. Um, so I think one of the, you know, it's a funny question, funny answer to a question. What do you believe to be a truth in medicine or life? Uh, most people, other other people don't believe. And I think the answer to me is, is that that um, uh, just doing something isn't necessarily good for our patients. It's something that I think was also highlighted during this pandemic and the discussions and the behavior of many clinicians and emphasizes the reasons why we need to really try to get the data and use the best available evidence always to try to answer those questions. Yeah, I don't know if, if everybody else ran into this like I did. At my institution, what happened at the beginning of this pandemic was 
that lots of non-intensivists became involved in intensive care. And what I mean by that was, is I had daily talks with rheumatologists and daily talks with my hematologists, and they were trying to relate things that they um, saw and recognized in their field to the ICU. And oftentimes they, they, I knew they were wrong. So they'd say, this is an inflammatory process, right? We have to give an IL-6 receptor antagonist because IL-6 levels are high and we have to do that. Uh, and um, while I don't know if IL-6 receptor antagonists are good or bad in this disease, I was fairly confident that just giving them because IL-6 levels were high, we had tried that before in critical illness and it hadn't gone that well for us uh, and that we shouldn't just say if A is abnormal, we should do something to make A normal again because that's been shown numerous times that that's not what's beneficial for our patients. Not, not to mention, I think, the, the lack of perspective on time and especially with IL-6 antagonists remembering that they came to rheumatology after failing in a critical care. Yeah, and that's absolutely. how they became, they became big in rheumatology. Somebody salvaged, salvaged them uh, in another field. The last Correct. question, uh, and I know that you have to go to uh, take care of patients, uh, have a clinical meeting, is what would you want every intensivist that's listening to know could be a quote or a fact to close? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the quote that uh, was taught to me as I was growing up in my medical life was, um, don't just do something, sometimes just stand there. Uh, and you know that goes to what we talked about before, which is, is that just doing something isn't necessarily beneficial for the patients. And sometimes just giving the patient time uh, and letting your, your, what you're already doing work uh, is, is uh, the answer to these problems. And sometimes uh, not doing something, but being with the family and being with the patient and being present there uh, is, is the right answer too. So that quote runs through my head uh, a lot. And when I'm sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do, what should I do? Uh, and then that thought comes through of, well, maybe the thing is don't do something, just stand here. Uh, and let let things develop and try and take in the picture and see see what happens. So I think that's that's the quote that I would relay is don't just do something, sometimes just stand there. That's a perfect place to stop. Todd, I really want to thank you for your time and sharing your expertise with our audience. I look forward to talking with you about uh, other topics related to critical care in the future. Thank you very much. So, sounds great. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks for the time. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound critical care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.